Hello and welcome to the Tell Me If You Can podcast, a podcast where I have the honor of listening to and unpacking stories from different amazing women. My name is Ogechi, your host, and today's guest is Yvette Walker. Yvette has a career in journalism that spans 30 years and currently teaches Introduction to Media and Communications at her local university. Yvette is also a fellow podcaster. In today's episode, Yvette shares how she got into journalism, the stories and moments that touch her most in her career, how her faith is weaved into her journey, and how she gives back to future journalists. Let's take a listen to Yvette's story. Hi, Yvette. Welcome to the podcast. For those of us that don't know who you are, can you give us a quick bio, who you are, what you do, and where you're from? Sure. I'm Yvette Walker. I live in Norman, Oklahoma, where I am the assistant dean at the Gaylord College of Journalism and Mass Communication, which is at the University of Oklahoma. Um, I also teach. I teach intro to media, and I'm teaching journalism ethics this semester. And, um, and I am a podcaster, and I have a show called Positively Joy that you can listen to really everywhere. <laughs> and thank you so much, Ogechi, for letting me be on your show. Oh, of course. Um, I also recorded on um, Yvette's show, so it's a nice swap that we're doing. And I love her podcast and the positive message that she shares through it. And so I wanted to ask you... You talk about teaching media and communications. Did you always have a goal to go into that field growing up or did that change? Oh, yeah, definitely. So, you know, when I was a little girl, um, I would, you know, my mother would would tell me that I was always like, like doing movie reviews, like, like, you know, describing a movie or describing something. And I made little newspapers. I was such, I was such a nerd. (laughs) I made, I made little newspapers with like, you know, front page and, you know, and comics and movie reviews. Yeah. I, I always wanted to go into newspapers. And so that's exactly for whatever reason, I always had that goal and I went to college for it and I graduated with a journalism degree and uh, worked in journalism for quite a few years. I'll go ahead and, and share my age, but <laughs> probably about 30 years. And then about five years ago, I uh, moved into ac- academia, which is nice because now I am getting a chance to share my information, the knowledge that I have with the next generation. So I'm I'm happy about that. So that is so cool. What is some, what is, there's probably so many, but What is one or two moments, what are one or two moments that um, were pivotal or that struck, strike you the most in your career in traditional journalism? Yeah. And I'm glad you use the word traditional because my career has spanned from traditional into digital. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And you might want to talk about that a little bit later, but I would say some early experiences when I was, you know, a cub reporter, uh, back in Gary, Indiana. And it's interesting because I, I thought I always wanted to be a writer and I always wanted to write, but for many reasons, I ended up moving into editing. One Mm. happened in Gary. Um, I was covering 
uh, really much, really a murder spree in Northwest Indiana. Uh, this man was a serial killer. His name's Elton Coleman. You can look him up. He was actually tried and convicted and, and given the death sentence. But when he was still um, on his spree with a woman, by the way, um, his co-conspirator, um, I was uh, I was covering that, and um, he he killed a young girl and then another uh, young lady in the in the um, Detroit uh, excuse me in the Gary Indiana area, and um, one two pivotal things. So when they finally found the body of the young girl who was about nine. I don't know. I just always thought they would find her okay. And when they found her dead, that just really, that did something to my soul. It, I, it was very unexpected. Mm-hmm. I had, had not worked in journalism for very long, probably just a couple of years, but I think I saw myself becoming very jaded or at least getting used to violence at that time. And it's changed in Gary, but at that time, Gary was the murder cap capital per capita and also um, very high unemployment and high welfare. Um, that was at that time. Gary has changed. Um, so, so I just think that I had gotten just a little desensitized. Uh, shortly after that, uh, he killed an, another young woman from all accounts, a wonderful young lady, um, you know, went, had, had a strong church community. Uh, but she was missing. They could not find her. Mm. And the Detroit police found a woman that they thought might be her. For whatever reason, the the family grew to like me because I'd been covering these stories. So the father flew up to Detroit to identify the body. And they allowed me to sit in their home with them while they awaited the call from the father to see if that was the daughter. I tell that story to students today because you cannot be, you know, we're, we're told and taught to be objective and we should be, we should be fair and objective, you know, in journalism, but you cannot sit in a home and not feel empathy for the people around you. I mean, we were all crying that night, you know, waiting for the call to come. And then when the call came and the father said, yes, it was her. I mean, you, you could not feel the, the emotion in that room. And if you could not feel it, then I don't know, there, there was going to be something wrong. So, Mm -hmm. but those two, and then, and then, and then there was a third one, which I won't go into, but those two in particular made me begin to wonder, um, is this where I should be? I'm becoming, I think I'm becoming desensitized, although certainly there was an emotional catharsis that night with the family, but I just wondered if that was where I should be, if that's the work I should be doing. Um, shortly after that, I left Gary and moved to Dallas, Texas, where I moved into editing. And I worked in editing for many years and, and began to work with reporters to help shape their stories, help you know focus their stories, um, and then moved into management and newsrooms after that. Wow. So you re- your career really spread the gamut, basically, from kind of those beat roles to um, editing and shaping the stories. And then 
you know, managing the people that tell the stories. So um, I want to go back to how what you said about feeling jaded or feeling almost um, desensitized to the violence that was around you and that you were reporting. Um, you Being someone that has a strong connection to her faith, how do you feel your faith allowed you to manage those emotions and those feelings? Um, how did it play a role during that time? Well, I think there was a time there where I was suppressing a lot of that. Mm. Um, working in a field where you're supposed to communicate the news and truth and supposedly not having opinions, you are, I think, I think many of us, and I think, I think it's a new generation that's growing up now, but I think many of us learn to not talk about those things, not say, Hey, I'm a Christian, not really talk about those things. And for years and years, it really, it was, it was until I got to Oklahoma, probably because we're in the Bible belt, um, mm-hmm. that I felt more comfortable saying, yes, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus Christ and, and the love he has for me. But back then I definitely did not do that. Now I was going to church for sure. And, um, I found solace in church. And even sometimes I remember being in Gary, which was not my hometown and just wanting to find a place to feel comfortable. And I would actually go in churches. Um, so I think underneath, I think I had a foundation that helped me get through that, but I wasn't, I wasn't using it openly. You know, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Because, because I was a reporter covering this story and I had to, in my mind, remain completely neutral and objective and not bring up what I thought about anything. But I think you're right. I think the fact that I, that I, that I am a believer, I was a believer. Um, I went to church. I think that probably helped me get through it. Mm-hmm. It was so sad because, because the young lady I just talked about, and then yet another story, which I said I wasn't going to talk about, but I'll just mention it briefly. Um, they both were religious individuals and the terrible mm-hmm. things that happened to them um, was, was hard was hard to, to, to bear witness to and to talk about. And, you know, when you're a reporter, you have to know, you know, almost as much about the story as anyone to be able to communicate it effectively. So I had to know those people's stories. I had to know what he did to their bodies. I had to know those things so that I could write the story. Um, and I think you do shut down a little bit so that you are not affected because you, you know, you're going in doing that every single day. I was the police reporter, by the way, I might not have mentioned that. So I saw, I saw my share of dead bodies while I was there Mm -hmm. and, um, went on police raids and things like that. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting because it is a, it is a role for a lot of young people. Usually when a, when a person graduates and starts working in journalism, they often will get the police beat. It's one of the most important beats, I believe, in the whole paper, but yet they give it to the youngest people there. So um, it's, it is a great experience to, you know, you're, you certainly jump, you know, you dive in because you have to. But I think, yeah, I think my faith definitely helped me not go crazy, but I wasn't mm-hmm. witnessing to it. I wasn't talking openly about it. 
you know, probably like I do now. That's interesting. And I think I, I can relate in some of the positions that I've had. I'm blessed now that for the first time ever, I actually work in a place where faith is talked about openly, but I've worked a lot of positions where, um, it's not necessarily frowned upon, but it's not the norm. Like you said, you're supposed to be objective. And um, I worked in social services, working with social workers and and working in child sex abuse. So you see, and, and I, my job was mm-hmm. reading a lot of court reports and reading a lot of um, psychological reports and entering information, doing background investigation. And like, like the police beat, a lot of fresh masters in social work um, students or graduates or interns, they would be placed in CPS to do their internship or to get some of their early experience. And it's almost like your, your experience trial by fire. And it does, it is hard and it's grueling and emotional. And I don't think there's ever really an education that you can get to prepare you emotionally for what you're exposed to. But the people that I know that have stuck with it have figured out a way to balance their emotions and whether it's through um, self-care practices that they practice, boundaries, their faith, they figure out how to manage themselves during that time. But also people might leave. (laughs) They say, okay, I'm doing two, three years. And once they start a family, it's hard to reconcile what you see and then with your own kids. So um, I can see why they might leave that to the young um, sprutlings of the journalism world before they, before they might grow their wings. It's almost like a trial by fire. But I, I think that sometimes what I would do, even if I didn't outwardly say it, I would pray for those people, pray for those families and pray for those cases and I knew social workers that would pray for those people and pray for those families. They may not tell those families or if the family asked them to, they would agree. And it was appropriate because it, it, it was, they did it in a professional way. And so I almost imagine you sitting in that living room with that family, maybe saying a silent prayer yourself for them as they wait for that phone call. Um, and so I think that that's a way that you can reconcile your faith in a in a position that might ask ask that you don't share it um, to yeah. anyone listening. That's kind of how I've done it in my past. And you know, once you get comfortable with people that you work with, maybe you can share that that's what you do without preaching it, it's without being crossing those boundaries or those lines. But um, yeah, I think that's that's a tool that could be used in any work setting. I think so. And I think that when I was in that living room, I think we probably were all praying, but I was, Mm -hmm. I was so young then I was probably 25. And while I was always a believer, I would say that I probably wasn't as fully cemented in my faith as I am today. Of course, many, many years have gone by and I've learned a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up Catholic and love I mean I, I've always loved the the Catholic faith and I and right now I I sometimes go to Episcopalian church as well as a non-denominational church um, sometimes I go to both because I I love the I love the old songs as much as the new I love the ritual 
especially on the high holy days. But I probably was really more following directions at that mm-hmm. time than exploring my own relationship with Christ. Well, I know that for a fact. So I probably mm-hmm. was following, I was following the, um, uh, the missalette. I was reading the prayers as we would genuflect and get up and move around the church like we do. But I, I don't think at that time, um, as much as I loved being in church, I loved being in church. I loved to sit there on the cool pews in, you know, listening to the heels clicking on the marble floor. I mean, I always loved being in my church and sometimes we'd just go to spend time there. Um, I, I did that growing up in Chicago and I, I, I've done that because I've moved around a lot for my job. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I've done that in places uh, that I just moved to where I didn't know a lot of people. So I think I was probably yearning for a deeper relationship, but maybe didn't know how to go about it just yet. So just, just even being there, being in the Lord's house gave me a mm-hmm. lot of comfort, I think. Um, yeah, really looking back, I've, I've visited churches and just sat in the empty churches um, when I was young. So I probably was unconsciously doing a lot of what you're talking about, but I think, um, I think I really had a lot of room to grow. And fortunately he has allowed me to do that. (laughs) Yes, of course. Of course. So you talk about, we talked about earlier traditional journalism and then how it kind of, you moved into digital media. Um, I wanted to talk about how you adapted to that transition over your 30 year experience, media and how we consume it has changed a lot. And so um, from the newspaper to then maybe the internet, and now you can get your news at the drop of a dime on Twitter or on an app on your phone. How have you been able to adapt through those different transitions in your career? Oh my, it's just been so, it's been so crazy. It's been such a whirlwind. Um, you know, you go back and you think about big events, for example, mm-hmm. Um, in 1995, um, the explosion, um, of the federal building here in Oklahoma in 95, that, yeah, in 95, that was before social media. I mean, when you think about it, when you, when you think about these events like that, you're like, wow, that was before social media. What would that coverage have been like today? So for me, I've, I moved around a lot, not because I've ever been fired, <laughs> but uh, you you tend to either move around a lot to get more experience and have more opportunities mm-hmm. when you're in that kind of position, or you stay in one place for a long time. So a friend of mine calls them the locals and the nationals, somebody who stays in a couple places for a long time and someone who moves around a lot. I was one of the ones who moved around a lot. So probably, so I worked, so I worked in Gary, Indiana. Um, I moved to Dallas, Texas. Uh, then I moved to Detroit, Michigan, stayed there for, for probably one of my longer stints. And then in Detroit, um, in 95, also in 95, uh, something happened in Detroit that you don't really hear about in newspapers anymore, but that was a strike. So the newspapers Mm -hmm. went on strike and I left (laughs) because, um, I didn't want to have to cross a picket line. I was in management at that time and I would have had to cross Got a picket it. line and I didn't want to do that. And plus I had no family in Detroit. So I moved uh, to Austin. 
So I worked in Austin for a couple of years, and then I moved to Kansas City, um, where I spent another one of my longer stints. Um, and then from Kansas City, moved to Oklahoma. So when I'm looking, and I moved in Oklahoma in 2006, which was right around the time of social media. So when yes. I go back and I look at my career, um, I always have to remember what town was I living in? <laughs> what newspaper was I working for? And the move from Kansas City to Oklahoma probably was the most significant in the digital world because that, again, 2005, 2006, we saw the the birth of Twitter and Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. So um, when I moved from Kansas City to to Oklahoma, they were just, uh, and this is the Oklahoman in Oklahoma City, they were just beginning their digital work. Um, well, I, should, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say just beginning. They had begun. They had begun their, uh, an on, they had begun an online uh, platform. They'd begun their digital work, but now they were really trying to not make it separate from the newsroom. And one mm-hmm. of my roles coming from Kansas City to Oklahoma was to really try to to bring the newsroom into producing for online. Got so we it. brought in so we brought in blogs. The first time that people were blogging, um, and what that meant. You got to remember that this was a time when journalists were writing stories that would actually run the next day, and it yes. was a ve- it was a very interesting thing for people to quote unquote scoop themselves. Like they would say, okay, give me, give me a story for right now for online. And the reporters would say, well, but the story's not coming out till tomorrow. Yeah, I know. But just give me, give me something for online now. Well, no, the story's coming out tomorrow. So it was very, it was a very foreign thing. And of course now we break news online. We don't even think about it anymore. So that was, yeah, that was a very, very new uh, and different thing in trying to figure out who the audience was who was listening to what um, and why in, in or reading, I should say, and why would they read a paper as opposed to going online? Like what was the experience? What were they trying to get out of it? All of that, we were still throwing spaghetti at the wall and trying to figure out what stuck. So it was, yeah, wow. it was a pretty interesting time. So now as a professor, how do you kind of equip? Cause who knows, maybe we'll just like, beam up a a shot of light and the news just pops up as we're drinking our coffee or something. We don't even have devices in 15 years. Who knows? So how do you prepare (laughs) your students for, they may not be able to predict how media is going to change, but how do you predict, predict or train your students to be able to adapt to those changes? Some students that I know might, that might want to still do the very traditional journalism and people consume it. It's not consumed in nearly the same way. And so how do you encourage them to continue their passion, even if it's a a form of media that's dying or how do you encourage them to just adapt? The encouraging thing is that we continue to see people with a very, very strong interest in journalism. So Mm -hmm. our, our numbers have only increased, even though we hear all around us that, you know, news is dying. And that's not true at all. Uh, it's just the platform that you're consuming it on. So we teach them the basics even still, because no matter what platform you produce uh, or you're producing content for, you still have to produce the content. So you need mm-hmm. to know how to report. You need to know how to write a story. You need to know how to interview a person. Um, 
and create relationships with your sources. You need to know how to develop your beat. You mentioned that earlier. And in case people don't know what a beat is, it's just an area of coverage, like say mm-hmm. education or, or police, like I had. Um, those things are still very valuable. You've got to know how to do all that whether or not you're going to put it in a paper or it's going to go on a podcast or it's going to go online or it's going to be a broadcast script. It's all the same. It's all the same. um, Oh gosh, I'm trying to say that foundation um, Mm -hmm. of knowing how to do something, you know, you've got to, you know, that the expression and it's a biblical one, you know, building on firm ground and not on sand. Mm -hmm. Um, if you cannot write a story, it doesn't matter whether or not we're beaming or not. <laughs> so, I'm not going to read it. Or I'm not yeah, going to watch it. Exactly. And the funny thing is this. So I'm looking around and I'm seeing QR codes everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Do you know that QR codes were around like 15 years ago? Maybe even yeah. 20, maybe even 20. I mean, I remember QR codes coming into fashion and going out of fashion. And now I'm looking up and I'm seeing QR codes again. And I'm like, what are you doing using QR codes? Isn't that old? So I think things are cyclical. I think that we, uh, we have a lot of innovation, but some things do come around again. But no matter what it is, you've got to know the basics. And that's what we teach. You know what? That's actually a really good point because when I I have a huge passion in fashion, I didn't mean for that to rhyme, <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's the same with a lot of things. Fashion, there's always that trend that comes back five years or the nineties are back every two years or whatever. And so things are cyclical, even with the age of innovation. And I think part of it is because there's a familiarity with certain things and we want to hold on to what we're familiar with, but maybe tweak it to adapt to the modern age. And we see that with uh, cars. We see that in fashion. We see that. And like you said, in the way that you tell a story, you can tell the story on the top on like projected on a building in Times Square, but a commercial has to move people to want to, if the commercial doesn't make me interested in the product, it doesn't matter what the celebrity is. It doesn't matter where it's being consumed. I'm not interested. And I yeah. think, like you said, the basics of storytelling, I think that is a skill that translates now as a podcaster. I can understand the basics of having an outline, understanding your subject, um, having at least the core skill in interviewing. And that translates to writing an article, to writing any kind of story. And so I think that's important to remember that sometimes people focus on the uncertainties. And like you said, they are not focused on building that strong foundation. um, And they're worried about, you're worried about the wrong thing in your career. um, Right. And not, not shoring up their basics because the journalists that have the long career, the outstanding awards they do the basics exceptionally well, and they've added all the like razzle dazzle on top of it. <laughs> they are they they aren't just focused on the razzle dazzle and not doing the basics. And if they if they've been able to hang around enough or long enough, they probably are very ethical individuals. And it's mm-hmm. important, so important, for there to be ethics in journalism. 
Um, there are there are uh, lists that are produced every year that talk about the most trusted jobs. You've probably seen them. And, yes. every, and every year, reporters are down at the bottom near the car salesman, which is true. <laughs> I mean, that's wow. where that's that they tend to be. Um, I think it's because it's a question of whether or not, you know, why are we doing this? Are we doing it just to sell papers or sell advertising space on TV? Or do we have the, the you know, the soul of the community at at, at heart, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, like I said, that family who believed in me, who believed that I could tell the story of their daughter, whether or not she was found okay or not, um, whether or not they, they believed that I could actually do justice to mm. to her, you know? And I think that's, and that's why I talked about developing your sources and all of that. I mean, there's there's a trust. There's a trust between a reporter and a, and a source, and there is a trust between an, a media outlet and its community. And I think that right now, especially, we have our leaders telling people that we're enemies of the state and that if we have a journalism degree, you know, we are an enemy to this country, which is so ridiculous. But we have people saying that. And so developing these relationships and and creating the trust it's important. So you've got to be an ethical individual. And so this semester I happen to be teaching journalism ethics, which I love. I don't get a chance to teach it every semester, but I love it. And, um, and we talk about this, we talk about all these, you know, should this person have done that? And, you know, what, what was something that they could have done and what are the, what are the ethical principles that you should think about? And I always tell my students and no no matter what class that I'm teaching, what are your own moral and ethical codes? Because you've mm. got them. And I always tell them, if you don't get anything out of this class but this, I want you to leave here knowing where you stand on your own ethical and moral codes so that, so that when you're facing a decision, and you will be, you'll be able to make a decision easily knowing, I believe this, I stand on this, so I'm not going to have to stress over this decision. I, that brings me to my next question. I was going to ask, um, what were some hard boundaries or hard lines that you were never going to cross as a journalist? But I wanted to comment on what you said, that there is that trust between the source and the journalist. But I think more now more than ever, people want to feel like wherever they're getting news, because you can get, quote unquote, news or things that call themselves news from anywhere, it's very important that you are really making sure where you do get informed is um, objective, holistic, and fact factual, and that they have good sources and they've trusted good people to be their sources and that they're being ethical in the way they present things. Um, the term clickbait is always brought up when you see a link online. Sometimes those titles are used and the summary that's posted is used to sensationalize something and then you actually read the article and it's not at all what they made it to seem. And so that makes you not trust that news source or that it it's it makes it hard to trust the media. Um yeah, but that's and- not that's not the whole purpose of media. That's just a, a rotten few that do that to make money or to get ads sense. And right. Like and, that. and it's important to remember that clickbait is not news. The no. kind of clickbait that most of us see that 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 generates money. It generates either advertising or some kind of sponsorship dollars. 
and it's not news. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, you know, even celebrity news, there's such thing as celebrity news. Um, yeah. But typically the clickbait stuff that we see, that's not news. Yes. And I think that most people, um, if you really look at it, you can tell the difference, but a lot of people just don't think about it that way. But I'm here to tell you, that's not news. <laughs> Was there like a hard boundary? Like you said, you told your students to determine their ethical code. So one reporter might maybe tell a few white lies to be able to get um, a source or access to inf- key information even if the overall goal was for a good cause, but someone else might say, I don't want to lie at all in order to get my sources or information. So was, were there some codes that you had and did you always have them or did you have to learn them along the way? I, I think I'm a, you know, I'm not perfect, but I have always, I think been a very ethical individual and it's <laughs> probably not because I'm just a perfect person. It's because I don't want to get caught <laughs> because <Yes. laughs> I I never, I always figured there's no way I could do this because you'd get caught. And I know some people, um, I mean, I remember even being in high school and um, being with a friend of mine and she stole some candy from the store and I was horrified. I was horrified. <laughs> I never would have even thought of that because like, why would you even maybe, you know, uh, chance getting caught and, or, you know, being with your friends and going to see a movie and then running into another movie theater and seeing another movie. I'm like, Oh my God, I, you know, you just can't do that. Right. So i like to say it's because I'm just such this perfect person. Um, but it's more likely it's because I was, afraid, I was afraid of getting caught. And also certainly, um, my upbringing, my parents are very ethical and they raised mm-hmm. me in church. And I know that it is wrong. I mean, I know the difference between right and wrong. But today, when we are faced with decisions, um, like I think, I think probably the ones that I was faced with the most are people trying to buy you or give you stuff mm-hmm. to do a story or to have a, po- a, a favorable outlook on a story. Um, I think that's probably what I ran into the most just in my career. Um, and it's just easy to say no. Cause again, that's just, again, what I was taught. You don't do that. That's a no, that's a strong, no, it's wrong. Um, yeah. and your and, name is in the, attached to that story. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and I would always say your, your, yes, your name is your bond. All you have is your credibility. Um, and, and frequently I would say if my name's on it, it better be right. You know, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think, but I think, however, today, I think today young people are faced with these, with these areas of gray. So, yeah, you know that it's unethical to pay a source for, for anything. I know sometimes we see that in some entertainment fringe areas, but you know, it is, it is, it is not right. It is wrong to pay a source to give you information. So we know that. However, where I think we come into the gray areas are like, okay, so where we get this information, it's online. Who said it? Do we know that this source is credible? Do we know that they really know what they're talking about? Um, you know, it's, it's these areas of how we're actually doing the reporting that I think can be, can be tricky today. The market has fragmented in so many ways. We can get our news and information in so many ways, you notice I said news and information because there's information out there that's maybe not news. And some of that information isn't even any good. 
there's so many websites that you're that you might question because you don't know if they're credible. So we mm-hmm. just have to be careful in our reporting to make sure that the information we're getting is legitimate and credible um, and real. You know, we've we've seen we've seen lots of um, examples of information that has been um, manufactured, right? And mm-hmm. so we need to we need to watch out for that. Yes, I think I mean as we lead up to an election, those of those reporters that are doing anything related to politics or basic hometown news, um, they need to make sure that they're being as accurate as possible. So I wanted to go back to your career path. So you started off as a writer and then an editor and then a in management roles, and you are a woman of color. So in those varied roles, did you feel that you had to, did you feel welcome in those roles being a woman of color? And did you feel like you had to maybe work a little bit harder or do something different in order to be given those positions or those opportunities? I think that in the very beginning, I probably didn't know any better, but yes, I think I, I think I did. Um, I, I know for sure that I was looked at a certain way. I know Mm -hmm. this because when I worked in Gary and I was a woman of color who at 25 didn't have a, didn't have a child, wasn't married. This was an anomaly to some people. They wondered, why aren't you married and why don't you have children? As if to say that was, wow. Yeah, no, really, really. That was, that was like, they were, they were shocked. They were surprised. Like how many kids you have? Uh, none. Okay. Um, so I know that there are, you know, stereotypes put on you. Um, Mm -hmm. again, that first job, that's going to be hard for anybody. As I said, covering, covering police and safety, especially in a city where there is a lot of crime, no matter who you are, it's going to be tough. But I will say this, um, they did not really, no one either on my newspaper side or on the police side ever said, I'm going to keep you from getting the story, you know, just because you're a woman. No, I got the call at 4 a.m. Hey, we're about to go out on a raid. Come with us. Okay. (laughs) Um, So that was, so that did not keep me back, Um, which which is great. From from there, I moved into editing, and so I was, you know, really wasn't covering news on the streets anymore. Um, but I've talked to a lot of other reporters who have found themselves pigeonholed for one, you know, one way or another, and had to break out of some kind of a stereotype. So um, I think I have been lucky now. Now trying to get management jobs and moving up on that on that ladder. Um, I just tried to do the best that I could do and make and, and make relationships with the people that I worked with so that they can see I would do my best and that I was serious about this. And I think that they saw something in me to, you know, and to be able to do that job. So um, definitely cultivating relationships with, and you know, they call it networking, but cultivating relationships with people that you work with is critical. If you want to move up within the ranks you're already in. Now in my, in my field, it wasn't unusual for you to move around because you get to a point 
where you can only go so far because someone, someone else is in that job and they're not leaving. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so you need to be, you know, mobile and move around and, and, and help your career. That's, that was very common. And I think still is in my, in my field. Um, but, but, but you can make some incremental movement, even in a single place, but you won't, if you have not cultivated those relationships with your colleagues and with the people who are above you. So, yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. It sometimes you work your way up as much as you can go. And if you're comfortable or have the means to, and you did, because at that time you were young and being unmarried and not having children, um, is fine at 25, if anyone's listening. (laughs) Um, and also it allows you the free, it allowed you the freedom to experience the roles that you wanted to experience in different network stations and things like in different, not stations, but in different cities that, um, had the positions that you were looking for. Um, so that, that ability to be flexible was useful for you at that time. For sure. Um, so I think that you should always not, maybe sometimes what the Lord has for you is not to stay at that place, even if you love it and you have to take that leap and you seem to be really good at changing. I cannot stand change. <laughs> Um, even if it's change that I want for myself, sometimes it scares me, even though I know I prayed for this and I'm like, I prayed for this and I have it and I'm still scared. So you, you moving multiple times by choice is like mind boggling to me. Um, <laughs> and being able to adapt in each of those different environments is definitely a skill that not everybody has. So I think that is amazing. <laughs> and, you know, and again, now that might bring it back to, because, because really, I got to say, it's probably really been within the last five years where I really have intentionally thought about my relationship with God and how Mm -hmm. I can, how I could deepen that and how I could use the gifts he's given me to honor him. Before that though, um, he was always there. I mean, Mm -hmm. and I knew that. So I think that, and, and, and remember I moved to places where I knew no one. So, you know, I grew up in Chicago. I worked in Gary, which was nearby, you know, so I could always go home. But then when I moved to Dallas, I didn't know anybody. I had some very, very distant relatives, but I really didn't know anybody. Um, And then when I moved to Detroit, didn't know anybody. And when I moved to Austin, nobody. (laughs) Um, So, so but you know, the longer you're in the business, it's, it's, it's helpful to have kind of like a nationwide network of people. Um, mm-hmm. but, but early on when you're moving, nobody, and the only consistent was God for sure. I mean, I can tell you that. And I think that that's why I would find myself in churches. I mean, like this really, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. Um, I would just find myself in churches and they'd be open during the day. Um, um, it seems now some churches are actually closed during the day because maybe there's crime in the community. But at that time, yeah. um, churches were just wide open. You could just go in and sit down and I would go on my lunch hour. And um, that was a real thing to me. And I think maybe that did. I haven't really thought about it. So you're bringing this back to me. But every time I'd go someplace new, that's what would happen. I'd find my way to, to a church. That is so beautiful. I love that that um, that was a constant for you. And almost I feel like it grounded you in each new place. It was a mm-hmm. route that you could 
rely on in each new place. And I, I honestly think that the Holy Spirit works in such a way that when people say like faith beyond understanding, you had that faith, you couldn't articulate it that way. But the fact that you continued that like normalcy of finding a place of worship, even if it was just to sit and feel the presence of God and be around God was um, a way for you to be accustomed to the new environment that you're in, a way for you to um, then be able to adapt and thrive in the way that you needed to without you even really knowing it. And so I'm happy that it's bringing up that those moments for you talking about it now. And I think that's really cool. And it actually leads me to my next question. Um, I wanted to ask, so your podcast is called Positively Joy and you focus on the ways that people experience God in their life. And so I wanted to ask, um, and you've shared a little bit about how you've experienced God, but is there like a pivotal moment and you talk about diving deeper into your faith the last six years, is there a pivotal moment that kind of was that shift for you in that deeper relationship that you have been able to establish recently? Yeah. So the first one, it was actually before longer than six years ago, but the first one was when I first got to Oklahoma in 2006. So that's been a little while ago. Um, I moved into a subdivision. You know, I was renting a house. I would always rent. Even if I wanted to buy someplace, I would always rent first. So I rented a house and around like a, a few streets away, there were churches. Now, of course, you know, this is Oklahoma. So there's a lot of churches. And <laughs> I, um, I went into this church and I'm, you know, getting my seat and they've, they've, they've given me the bulletin and I'm kind of looking through the bulletin before church gets started. And I see the name of someone who's going to give the sermon. And I said, Oh, Robbie, Robbie Trammell, that must be a common name here. And Trammell actually is a common name here, but that must be a common name. Not thinking at all that an editor at my paper was a deacon at this church and was going to give a sermon that just blew my mind. Wow. I mean, I didn't even, I just could, I would never even think about that before. It's like, okay, this person is a major editor at this paper, like, like making decisions for the front page every day. And he is a deacon at this church. So that was kind of mind blowing and told me that in, in Oklahoma, in this city, I, could feel comfortable expressing my faith and not, I would not be penalized. And to be honest, I should not have felt that way before because mm -hmm. what Jesus and the apostles and many of the saints have been through. I mean, certainly you will be, you know, there have been many people who were prosecuted for their, for their faith. And that still happens today around the world. So my fear, um, I'm not saying that that was a good thing or something that I should have done, but when I got here and I realized that that was not what was happening here, I think I felt like I could open. Um, and you know, that's really, it's really too bad that I felt like it had to be that way. Um, mm -hmm. but so once I get, so, so that happened and I'm like, okay, oh wow. Okay. I can actually, I can be religious here <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and work for a newspaper. Um, so that, so that was, that was one thing. And, um, 
the other one of the one of the really big things was um dating, you know, <laughs> and trying to find someone who shared the same faith as I did. Mm. And that was, you know, that was difficult. Um but but then I but then I found someone and and that that certainly has been wonderful and and that's my husband Tim and he's he's actually really helped me open up and taught me how to pray because I I was uncomfortable praying out loud. I felt like the words that I would bring were not, I guess, worthy enough, you know? So, so that has happened. And then last year, and I'm hoping to talk to one of my fellow retreaters about this very soon and have this on my podcast was a retreat called dive D I V E. And, um, I went to dive with a lot of, uh, trepidation and concerns that this wasn't for me. Dive is a retreat for worship leaders, for for creative people and worship leaders. And I am not a worship leader and I, I don't create music. And so I kept wondering, is this for me? Is this for me? Is this for me? But I write and God, you are a creative, right? God's given me those skills, but I've never used those skills in his honor. And so I'm just, I'm just, I'm stressing. I mean, really, I guess I'm just stressing over, should I go to this thing? Is it for me? Am I going to look stupid there? And the founder of this thing kept saying, and I will say, so her name is Rita, Rita Springer. She is an amazing musician and songwriter and has a lot of really just amazing songs out. And she kept saying, Yvette, yes, this is for you. Come. <laughs> so I, so I did. And it's, it, opened oh my goodness it just opened me in ways i can't even explain and so um what was birth of dive the podcast i'm writing songs now i mean i don't i don't write music i don't know how to write music but i'm writing song lyrics now i'm writing a devotional now i mean all these things that i said i wanted to happen you know god you've given me these gifts how can i use them um is happening now. Everything that I said that I wanted to do for him, not for me, but for him is happening. So it's, it's been a good few years. <laughs> yes, it sounds. And each one of those things, I always like to unpack a theme. That's just how I am to how I can receive information. But each mm-hmm. one of the things you talked about, um, finding a church and stumbling upon a church that happened to be where your editor was giving a sermon that kind Mm -hmm. of gave you permission to feel more comfortable in expressing your faith. And Mm -hmm. then dating a man that allowed that almost encouraged you. And in a way also gave you permission to pray in a way, pray in a new way and gave you um, confidence in the way that you prayed in the way that you could speak to God and feeling worthy to do so and then this retreat giving you permission to tap into that creative side that you've used so much in your professional life in a way that is an expression of your faith and all the fruits of this here podcast that's wonderful now this devotional which I I would love to read and (laughs) um just the beauty of creating musical lyrics I think is just um that is so amazing how for me, I often think when people ask me, how do you see God move in the world? I always 
think of the people that I've encountered or the almost happenstance that have been pivotal in my life that I didn't choose, but be, but for God, that happened to me mm-hmm. and I, I would be different if it didn't, if it didn't happen. And it doesn't mean that you wouldn't have received permission to feel comfortable expressing your faith. Um, if you went to a different church, because you probably would have still, maybe he would have brought it up in conversation in the office, but that experience with that particular person that you happen to be working with was intended for you to have. And I think that, um, that's so awesome. So I wanted to ask one last question before mm-hmm. I let you go. This is the part of the show where I always call it roses and thorns. And since you have a focus on joy, I wanted to ask you what's one rose or something that's brought you joy lately. And what's one thorn that you've experienced lately? Okay. Can they be the same thing? <laughs> sure. That's happened before. Yeah, go ahead. So, so of course the podcast, so I say the, the, the podcast happened after dive and it, that certainly it did. Um, but it certainly, I think was born of the pandemic as well. Um, so the podcast, uh, I've been working on that all summer and it's interesting because, and you tell me if you feel the same way, um, it's, it's like this, it's like this baby that all you want to do is work on your podcast. I mean, like, you know, every waking, <laughs> every waking hour, however, and I've heard other people say this. Um, why am I doing this? I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this to give honor and glory to God. And I do not want to fall into a trap that I can see coming. And that's mm-hmm. worrying about worrying about how many downloads is anyone listening? Worrying about you know worrying about um, I got <laughs> I got so I've gotten some reviews on Apple. Apple Podcasts, um, five star reviews. I got two one star reviews. Who gave me a one star review? So stressing over that. Wow. <laughs> um, and then also um, getting so busy, like like okay, I gotta do this and I gotta do this, and forgetting why I'm doing this in the first place. So I I see that as a possibility. And so I can't say maybe it's not a thorn yet, but I can see it so easily becoming a thorn and I'm fighting to not let that happen. Wow. Yeah. And and that's, I think that's with a lot of things that you start off with great intentions and then the, um, the micro tasks of it or the external feedback that you might get from it can skew the, all the, intentional or the the intended purpose that you started off with and Mm -hmm. so um it's nice that you could predict that so hopefully that kind of is a mental check each week or each month as you continue to go on and I think I agree I I um I'm like an extroverted introvert I like (laughs) to feel (laughs) I like feedback um but I also can ignore the feedback and it's like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And, <laughs> and so I, I, I care more about um, the downloads, I think, than the reviews. And I've gotten, and if you're listening, please leave a review, five-star review. Thank you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yes. Go on our podcast, leave a five-star review. But um, 
the reviews are important because of the analytics and I know all the text reasons why those are important. For me, I care about the downloads and I had to remind myself, okay, why do you care about the downloads? Because it's okay to care about those things. I get really finicky about certain ways that I edit things or how I post on social media. And I want to know, and I have to think, okay, it's okay to have a little bit of a neurosis in your process, but bring it back. Why, why did you start this? What was your goal? And if it's not a hundred percent and it's like 65%, does that take away from the initial purpose or was that just extra? And if it doesn't kind of like what we talked about, what are the basics of journaling and what is the razzle dazzle? If the razzle dazzle isn't all there, did you get the basics? And so like for me, the most important in last week with school starting and everything like that. And I have a full-time job. This is extra. Oh Um, yeah. For me, I was just like, I just need to make sure the podcast is edited and uploaded. The social media can happen over the weekend. If people were subscribed, they'll see it. And if not, they'll just be reminded when I post on social media. And that's all I was able to accomplish. The the episode went out and that's it. (laughs) And that was the goal because my goal is for people to consume the podcast and to to hear these stories and everything else is the razzle dazzle. And so as I agonize about downloads, I'm like, why do I care about downloads? Cause I want more people to listen. Not so I can say like, Oh, look at me. I have like a million people listen to my podcast because it's not about me. It's about how I'm serving the people listening and the beauty of these stories that I'm just honored to listen to and share um so bringing it back kind of keeps me in check when I get all you know super in my 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 (laughs) husband is just like what do you need to do and everything else is extra (laughs) and so I'm like okay I need the episode to go out everything else is extra he's just like okay then just do that and so sometimes people have to check you and you can check yourself as well yeah oh yeah I think I'm definitely checking myself but you know we so we I think we want the we want the um the ratings or the downloads because I guess we want to know that we're making a difference and I did recently get a review that really made me happy um because it it was like okay I'm doing this for a reason do you mind if I read it yes or go just ahead. A, a part of it. All right, They're so, so meaningful. They are, and so I'll just read a part of it. Um, and this person said, um, I love to hear the beautiful voices. It has been so uplifting for me. I feel they are sharing their lives with me. There is so much feeling and honesty coming through. You are in my prayers. So, I mean, that tells me that whatever that episode was affected someone. And that's really all, that's the only reason we're doing this. Yes. You know, I mean, really, that's that's why we're doing it. And for me in particular, since mine is faith based and specifically faith based, um, I want people to know. In fact, I have a catchphrase now that I haven't really used on the show, but I'm I'm working on a line of some merchandise. Um, See God everywhere. I mean, he is mm. everywhere. God is everywhere. See God everywhere. And so the idea that he is in the everyday and his joy is in the details. And that is what I'm trying to get across. And if I can do that for just one person, if only one person, you know, that's great. I mean, you know, my feelings would be hurt just a little bit, but because <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm a human being, but that's, yes. really what, that's what it's for. I mean, that's really what it's for. That, yes. And I think that's a perfect way to end this episode. 
Um, I want to thank you so much, Yvette, for such a wonderful conversation, for giving us a little bit of the insight of your experience in journalism and how your faith has shaped your journey. And um, how can people follow you along and follow your journey and your story? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Every time I talk to you, it's just such a (laughs) delight. And you can follow me at PositivelyJoy.com. And the podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, you know, all the typical places wherever you go for podcasts. But PositivelyJoy.com, the episodes are there as well. Um, There's a blog. Um, I have a free uh, five-step to find joy. I call it a teachable. And you can sign up for that there. Um, Because, you know, finding joy and living out your life in joy is a choice. You can choose. So five steps to choose joy. Um, Again, that's available for you at PositivelyJoy.com. Just sign up for it. Awesome. Go ahead and check out that freebie and tape it on a wall, figure out, give it to a friend, share it with others so they can find joy in their life every day. Thank you again, Yvette. And I hope those of you listening can find joy in your day-to-day life too. Have a great day. Amen. Thank you. This was such an amazing conversation with Yvette. I love how she shared about her faith journey and how it played a role in her career, even in ways that she didn't realize at the moment. I love how as she pivoted in each move and position, she grew as a person. She gives a lot of great feedback and tidbits for future journalists out there. So I hope you gain some wisdom from what she had to share. I had the honor of being a guest on Yvette's podcast, Positively Joy. She was a great podcast to host. And if you'd like to listen to that episode, I will link it in the show notes. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with a friend, subscribe to Yvette's podcast and share that with a friend. And as always, have a great day in your own amazing story. 